Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. About this time last year, I was reading a bedtime story to myself. And we've been working through the series of Harry Potter books and we've just come on to book number four. Now, uh, at the risk of a, a minor spoiler, towards the end of that book, one of the characters who you become invested in over the course of that story dies. And uh, I was a little bit nervous coming to this moment. I wanted to uh, figure out what my son would make of it. And so I ended up reading it to him and got his comments on what had happened and he said to me, uh, it will be fine because it's a story and no one dies in stories, so he'll come back to life somehow. That was how he understood stories to be. And <clears> there <throat> was this kind of thing for me of like, oh my goodness, right? we need to have a conversation about how stories actually work. Because up until now you've had uh, kids' stories that this doesn't happen in. But uh, as you get more and more stories, you'll see, yes, there are sad moments, there are tragic moments there are things that reflect brokenness there's a similar realization not just in how stories work but in how the world works there's a moment as we grow up that each of us experiences where the childhood naive view of the world where things will be great everything will be okay we start to say, oh wait that's not quite how the world is the world we live in is a fragmented world the world we live in is a broken world the world we live in is a world where there's much wrong there's much evil there's much that isn't as it should be and so i want to ask this morning the question why is that why is the world the way that it is because that childish view that's how it should be right we all know that and yet we see a world that's fractured where love and beauty and goodness and kindness seem to get eaten away. So over the next few months here at CCM Fallowfield, we're going to be having a look at three big questions. We're going to start by exploring why is the world the way it is? That's the question we're asking today. We'll then go on to say, well, if God's got something better than that for us, how does that new thing get formed within us? And then we'll look at how it gets expressed in the way we live, in the way we relate to one another. And as a springboard for answering these questions, we're going to be uh, using this book called Good and Beautiful and Kind by Rich Viodas. He points us to uh, parts of the Bible that speak into these things. And so uh, as a companion for the series, it might be worth giving the book a read. But we're starting with this question then of where we are, what's the world like, why is it the way it is? And Beth started by answering this question last week, showing us that there's a fracturing within each one of us, that we call it sin, that the problems aren't just external, but they affect our own lives, our own hearts, our own souls. I'm going to build on that this morning because that internal fracturing explains part, but not all, of how the world is the way it is. As well as the things that are going on inside us, there are also things happening outside us. There are factors, there are forces outside of ourselves that contribute to the world being the way it is. And at the start of his chapter, uh, on this in his book, Rich Viotis tells the story, it absolutely floored me. 
And he was telling us about a, a Texas lady, a church-going mom, and so she was deeply involved in her church. She'd turn up there every week, she'd bring her kids along, they'd be involved in all the kids' ministry programs, she'd be quick to volunteer to serve in the church, whenever there was a bring and share lunch or something like that, she'd be um, spending a long time cooking incredible food, bringing it along, she had loads of friends there, life and soul, of the church community at home. She'd try and uh, bring up her kids to, to read the Bible each night before they went to sleep and to pray together as a family and uh, to make sure they weren't swearing or using bad language or anything like that. And uh, <coughs> he tells the story of how uh, one weekend she decided she was going to go out to a community gathering where different people from the community she lived in were all coming together and uh, they would be uh, talking to each other, they'd be uh, having a laugh together, they would be building fellowship and you really think okay this is all great, this sounds good until the moment comes that he tells you what that community event was and, and it was the lynching of Jesse Washington. Jesse Washington was a young black man, this is a true story, who was lynched in Texas about a hundred years ago. And on that day when he was lynched, loads of people from that community, they gathered, they partied, they celebrated, they made it a, a social activity where they would build friendships, where they would laugh and joke while this evil was taking place. It's stunning when you picture the contrast there are postcards there with smiling faces in the foreground and burning bodies in the background it's horrific it's evil Viotis he, he points out it wasn't just one mum it wasn't just an isolated family who went he says the mum mentioned above could have been any mum on that day in fact in that part of Texas and in many other states it was many mums and dads and painfully children so I want you to think about that. I want you to hold a story like that in mind and I want you to answer this question. How could that be? How could the world get to that place? How could a society operate on those values where people who on paper in many ways seem to be doing the right thing, seem godly people in one sense of the word, are so blinded to the evil that's right before them, that they're participating, that they're enjoying, that they're joining in this thing that swept their culture. What can explain that? Is it just individual sin? Is it just the fragmentation and fracturing within each one of us? That's a no. I mean, individual sin has to play a part in it. The people who are involved have to take responsibility for their own choices. And yet I don't think that fully explains how something like that can be so prevalent, so normative within a whole group of people. So could it be a peer pressure thing? Could it just be either, uh, like a, a few people were doing it so others felt compelled to join in? It seems like something more. It seems like there was something in the air. It seems like there was something that was causing people to buy into this somehow being the right thing to do. How can you explain that? Or think about Germany in the 1930s. How can you explain what gripped that country at that time? What about apartheid South Africa? What explains it? Maybe from time to time you've seen echoes of the same thing happening in our own day. This is something we don't talk about all too much. 
We don't talk about these forces or factors that influence a whole culture, influence a whole society to believe evil is good, to value something that's so clearly wrong. And because we don't talk about it much, we don't have language for it. We don't quite know how to articulate these phenomena. We don't know how to put them into words, how to describe them, how to answer questions about what is behind them. And this is where the Bible can help us. Because the Bible, throughout the whole story of the scriptures, is consistent in pointing to the fact there are forces that are outside ourselves that influence our world, our societies, and our lives, and that these forces are somehow wreaking havoc in our lives and trying to seduce us away from the will of God. And the name the Bible has for these forces are powers and principalities. I don't know if you've ever been reading the Bible and come across those words, and perhaps you've read them for yeah, I don't know what that is, I'm just going to carry on and read the next bit. But powers and principalities are the answer the Bible gives to what is behind all this fracturing. What is behind all these waves in our world where we can see evil so clearly embraced? So this morning I want to answer two questions about powers and principalities. And they're these. What are they and how do we resist them? That's what we're going to look at. That's where we're going. And we're going to do it from our primary Bible passage this morning. It's going to be Ephesians chapter 6 and it'll be verses 12 to 17. So if you brought a Bible with you and you'd like to turn to Ephesians 6, that's where I'll be reading from. Or the words will be behind me on the screen if you prefer. So from verse 12. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So a passage tells us that a fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against cosmic powers over the present darkness. It's against spiritual forces. That's what we're talking about when we say powers and principalities. And Viodas defines what they are for us. He says powers and principalities are spiritual forces that become hostile taking root in individuals, ideologies and institutions. I think that's why it can be so hard to pin down. The fact that it's a mashup, it's not just that they work through individuals, although they do. It's not just that they work through ideologies, but they do. It's not just that they work through institutions, but they do. It's a mashup of all three. And they work in and through all of those things. So, Yes, individuals are responsible for evil. And yes, there are evil ideologies that people can buy into. And yes, problems can become institutionalised as well. And somehow in the blend of all three, these spiritual powers are at work. And so it can be really hard to isolate them. 
And we sometimes use the phrase systemic evil. I don't know if you've ever come across that phrase, but what we're talking about today is what's behind that. So if you hear systemic evil and think, whoa, there must be something going on here. We're talking about the spiritual forces that are behind it. They're behind those dynamics that get baked into society that perpetuate things like racism and sexism and abuse culture and climate destruction and so on. And that these things can be embraced as normal when they're clearly against the will of God. Well, that's what the powers and principalities set out to do. And so we're in a spiritual battle. Now, when I use that kind of phrase, when I speak about spiritual battle or spiritual warfare, I wonder if your mind jumps to horror movie scenes. I wonder if you think of someone shrieking and foaming at the mouth. A lot of the time, it's much simpler than that. Romans 8 tells us there are spiritual forces out there that are seeking to keep us from the love of God. And there are three ways they're trying to do this. And so spiritual battle, often these three things are the battleground that we fight on. The first thing they're trying to do is deceive. They're trying to build a culture of lies. In John 8, Jesus says that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. So this would include the lies that we tell. It would include the lies that we believe. And it would include the system that perpetuates falsehood in the world. Second thing they're trying to do is divide us. If I went out on the streets and asked 100 people what's wrong with the world, how many of them do you think would tell me what's wrong with the world is other people? And usually it's not just other people, but they can tell you exactly which other people are wrong with the world. Depending on who they are and where they lean, that could be anywhere. It could be people on the opposite end of the political spectrum. So they might say, oh yeah, the problem with the world is progressives or the problem with the world is conservatives. Could be people of a different age to them. So oh, yeah, young people are wrecking everything. Or oh yeah, it's, it's the boomers. They've just kind of ruined the world for all of us. Some people will tell you immigrants are the problem. Some people will tell you bankers are the problem. But when we just pin down, yeah, everything that's wrong with the world is such and such a group. We're giving an answer that's simplistic, that's divisive, and in many cases, simply wrong. The scriptures I read tell us we are not fighting flesh and blood. Our enemy is not primarily other people. It's the spiritual forces that are, that are at work behind them. And so as we turn against other people, as we fight other humans, we're letting the spiritual powers have their influence to divide people from people. We weren't made to fight other people. Got to love our neighbour as ourself. And then, thirdly, depersonalisation. They try and strip the humanity from people. Try and make us dismiss others. Uh, and often the way this works is just pigeonhole them. Just put them in a group. Oh yeah, you're one of those people and I can dismiss you all as a group. Often it's done based on race or class or gender or sexual identity or age or whatever it may be. But it's, it's pigeonholing people into a box and then dismissing them. And when we do this, when we're tempted to do it, when we're um, kind of incited to do it, it makes us miss that the person that we're talking to is a sacred creation in the image of God, and we should treat them as such. So there's a spiritual battle against these powers and principalities. What can we do about it? How do we fight the battle? How do we resist the influence that they're having 
in the world. Well, our, our scriptures tell us that God has equipped us. It's called the armour of God. And uh, th these are six things that are listed that God has given us to equip us for the battle. So you can think like a knight, kind of arming up, ready to go into battle. These are the things that God has armed us with. And the first of them is called the belt of truth. So we're to be armed with truth. If the powers and principalities are setting out to, to deceive, then the antidote to that is speaking truth. And often speaking truth can just be as simple as being willing to name things for what they really are. I think one of the most impactful sermons I've preached in quite a while was one I did about six months ago here in an evening meeting. We were doing a series working through the story of David in the Bible and I got the passage about David and Bathsheba and Bathsheba was a woman who David sent his armed guards to bring her to him so he could sleep with her and I read the passage I studied around it and I felt compelled in that sermon to, to name what was going on for what it was it was rape and it's clear as you read the story that's what it is but to say that out loud was powerful that unlocked some stuff it meant we could speak into other situations where power dynamics have been used abusively and that evening was an evening that lots of people were able to uh, find healing to be ministered to to find uh, some kind of um work of God going on in their lives through the fact that something that had not been said out loud much was now being brought to the light. There's a powerful thing in speaking truth, in naming what others are staying silent about, to, to look a situation in the face and say, yeah, what happened there? That was racism. What happened there? That was abusive. What happened there was unfair and you should not have been treated in that way. To speak truth when no one else is speaking truth, is a powerful thing to do. As well as the belt of truth, we've been given the breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness is something that we've been given as a gift in Christ. It's also something that we live out. It's living right before God, and it's reflected in the choices that we make. Every day we have loads and loads of choices that we make and in each of those choices we can either choose to to line up with what these powers are doing we can choose to be deceptive we can choose to be divisive we can choose to depersonalize others or we can choose to do the opposite we can choose to tell the truth we can choose to to love and serve and be united with others we can choose to affirm the sacredness of each person let me give you an example from my own life a few days ago i had uh, a telephone consultation booked in and when it was booked in I was told in advance that the first two questions I was going to get asked uh, during that conversation were have you taken any drugs in the last 24 hours and have you drunk any alcohol in the past 24 hours and I needed to be able to answer no to both of those questions otherwise um, the, the call couldn't happen I couldn't have the conversation that I wanted to have so uh, I knew this was coming up the, uh, in the morning and um, the evening before I was given the opportunity to have a beer and I quite fancied having a beer. I wanted to do it. Um, but I knew I had this call coming the following morning. And part of me in my mind was like, it won't matter. You know, see, it's only a beer. Yeah, I'm going to be in a fine state to have the conversation. And they'll ask the question, sure, but no one will know different. I can, I can just say, oh, no, and get on with the call. Nobody will know. Nothing will be affected. But you know what? That's not true, is it? Because I would know. 
And what I'd have been doing, if I chose to take that course of action, would be agreeing with the powers, would be saying, truth isn't that important, deception is fine as long as it's convenient for me, as long as it allows me to do something I'd like to do. I don't need to worry about the importance of truth, lies are okay. I'd be playing into the exact narrative that the powers are trying to work out in the, in the world, in my life. So instead, I made a different choice. I said, you know what, I, I'm going to have a soft drink. And then I'm not going to put myself in that position where I need to do that. I'm going to be able to tell the truth. It's a little way, small example, but practicing righteousness in those little ways is how we show we're not willing to go along with the destructive patterns of the world, the destructive patterns of the powers and principalities. It flips the narrative and says we're about something different. We're living a different way. We're living by a different set of values. A friend of this church is Rachel Gardner. She's spoke at uh, different things that we've done. And she said this. I love this line. She said, your presence as a Christian in a place is interrogating the lie that darkness wins. As you live out these little acts of righteousness, you're interrogating the lie that the powers and principalities will have their sway. Third piece of the armour we're given is shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, speaking of readiness, what it's saying is this. We will each get opportunities, opportunities to speak and opportunities to act in a way that pushes back what the powers are doing. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've had an opportunity to speak or act for God and you say nothing. You miss your moment. I had one this morning on the way here. I was in an Uber and the driver asked me a couple of questions and it came up that I was going to church. And a few minutes after the conversation, I just got into silence. I was like, oh, that was a golden opportunity. I should have asked this guy whether he has a faith. should have seen if I could share with him about Jesus. I missed my moment. And you know what? If you have those opportunities and you miss the moments, then for the rest of the day, uh, often it's just playing over in, in your head. I don't know if you've had that. Where it's like, oh, I should have said this. And yeah, these would have been the words for that moment. But what happens when we don't take the opportunity before us is that we're not ready. We're not ready. And often that's because our mind is on other things. Like honestly, this morning, the problem was my mind was on this preach. I was thinking about how I'm going to start. What am I going to say? How do I get into it? But it means my mind wasn't where it should have been, engaged in the moment and ready for the opportunity that came my way. Often it's through distraction that we miss the moment. So I read recently we have the attention span of eight seconds. I mean, that's goldfish level. But it's true, isn't it? So often our mind flips from where we're at to what we're going to be doing later in the day or maybe that dopamine hit of another social media refresh or whatever it might be. We should be ready to speak and particularly the readiness comes from the gospel of peace. The primary thing we should be looking to share with others is the good news, the gospel of what God has done. That in Christ, the powers and principalities are defeated. Sin has been conquered. There is reconciliation and forgiveness available. That through Christ on the cross, all our sins are washed away. And as we put our trust in him, we can be made friends with God again. And with that reconciliation with God, then comes restored relationships with one another. Restored relationships with the creation. The fractured world starts to be put back together again. 
Next part of the armour is the shield of faith. And when it's talking about faith, it's speaking primarily about trust in Christ. So we're to put our trust in Jesus, and particularly in this context we're speaking, the fracturing that comes through the powers and principalities. What we're doing is we're trusting there is something different. We're trusting there is another way and a better way. Jesus has won the victory through his death and through his resurrection. In Colossians 2, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So we're in a battle and this battle isn't a battle that we're fighting on our own, but we get to trust in the victory that's already won. You might think about a physical battle. You might think about soldiers marching to war and they'll do their best and they'll fight their hardest and they'll engage the moment before them. But they're actually relying on factors beyond their control for victory. They're relying on the air support. They're relying on the artillery support. There's a battle in the air behind them that determines the battle in the ground and allows them to make the advance. What Christ has done is the air battle. It's already been won. So as we step into the battle for him, then the ground is clear and we can live and fight in light of the victory that's already been won. We trust in that as we push the powers back. The fifth one is the helmet of salvation. Now this one regards perhaps the biggest lie of them all. If the powers are out to deceive us, the number one lie they want us to believe is this, that God can't love you. All this stuff about the love of God, that's for other people. That's for someone else. It's for people who haven't done what you've done. It's for people who haven't been through what you've been through. It's for people who have a different background to the background you have. But God's love couldn't possibly be for you. Here's the truth. God's love is for you. God loves you, not in a generic sense. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Salvation is the antidote to the lie. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You should put your trust in Jesus. You've got nothing left to prove. It's all been done. You are loved. You are accepted. That's the gospel. That's your salvation. Protects you from that lie. And the great thing is this salvation is on offer to anyone at any time no matter what you might have done no matter what your background is no matter what you've been through you can come to Jesus today and find this salvation and then finally is the sword of the spirit and we're told that the sword of the spirit is the word of God it's here in this word in the bible in the scriptures we have before us that we start to unpick the fracture in that we start to see a different picture form. There's a new narrative. There's an alternative story and it's revealed in the words of the scriptures. I don't know if you know the story of when Jesus went into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil in all kinds of ways. Hey, worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Hey, you can break your fast. You don't need to fast. Just turn the stones into bread. Do a miracle. Shazam. And you'll be all right. You don't need to trust God. Just provide for yourself. Throw yourself from the highest tower. I'm sure God will send some angels to rescue you. Every time 
every temptation that was put his way, the answer that Jesus had was words from the scripture. He was quoting, hey, but the word of God says this, so I'm not going to go along with what you're saying. The word was the answer. And I don't think this was Jesus kind of racking his brain trying to think of something relevant. I think he was so saturated with it, it came to mind straight away. In fact, I think what was going on is Jesus had gone into the wilderness with a particular chunk of scripture in mind that he was meditating over. Because all his answers come from the same two chapters. It was there. He was uh, soaking in the scriptures. The same is true when religious leaders challenged him. What came out? The word of God. Same is true when he went to the cross. What came out of his mouth? The word of God. It was all through him. I love this verse in Jeremiah chapter 15 it says your words were found i ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart i love that image of eating the word of god obviously not ripping out the pages and physically forcing them down but consuming them being nourished by them taking them in how are you going to take in god's word think about how, how are you going to read it what's your pattern going to be how are you going to mull over it what are you going to do to study it? How are you going to discuss it with others? What's going to be your way of memorising verses? How are you going to get this thing ingrained within you? Not just for the sake of it, but because it has power. Because the word of God will, will change you. It will form you. It will be, build in you the good and beautiful and kind life that stands in opposition to this fractured and fragmented world that the powers are operating on. And then from within you, what's been formed will spread and will transform and will change the world around you. So one more question. What do we do with all this? What do we do with what we've heard this morning? Because maybe some of you are saying, all right, Tom, I, I, I'm with you part of the way. I get that there's systemic evil. I look around, I see that. That's pretty undeniable. And maybe I can go along with the fact there's some spiritual thing behind it. Okay, so, so what do I do now? Do I need to go ghost busting? Do I need to go looking for spiritual powers everywhere? I think the answer is no. C.S. Lewis once said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We should know the powers and principalities are there. We should know what they're trying to do. But we shouldn't get obsessed. They shouldn't become our main focus. You see, what strikes me about the passage that I've read to you today is how normal all the armour of God is. It's living the Christian life. It's it's embracing truth. It's being willing to tell the truth when no one else is. It's making small choices righteously. It's being ready to share our faith. It's trusting in Jesus. It's remembering our salvation. It's reading our Bibles. It's ordinary stuff. And that's how we fight the spiritual war. We fight deception by embracing the truth and being ready to name things for what they are, even when it's hard. We fight division by realising the enemy isn't other people. And so we follow the example of Jesus in gently and lovingly sacrificing ourselves, serving others and being humble. We fight depersonalisation 
by affirming each and every person as a sacred and wonderful image bearer of God and loving them for who they are. The powers have already been defeated by Christ. He won on the cross and he rose again. If we stand in his victory and walk in his way, that's how we'll see the powers overcome and the kingdom of God advance in the world.